Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host? I'm Marianne. And I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. Thousands of people each year see unexplained lights in the skies day or night. They see flying crafts unlike anything we are currently known of in existing public knowledge. Not only do some see lights or crafts that cannot be explained away as swamp gas, Venus, satellites or any of the other normal excuses the governments and military trots out to placate people, but they also see and have interactions with the inhabitants of these ships. Many people are too scared to even tell another soul about their experiences and understandably so. Governments have deliberately cultivated a culture of ridicule and treating people brave enough to speak about their experiences like they have a mental illness or making a joke of them and their experiences or threatening them and their loved ones into silence. There are many, many reasons why most do not speak about what they have witnessed or experienced and these are all very valid reasons. However, there are some of us who will speak out despite criticism or fear of ridicule or even personal threats or intimidation, like my guest, Susie Hansen, is one such person. Last week, we talked about her early life and experiences with star people and UFOs and how this had and continues to impact her life. This week, we continue our most interesting conversation where we left off with a blue beam coming into her home and shining right onto her baby's bassinet. Are you ready to continue this journey into this area of the Shadowlands? Let's begin. For those who did not listen to the last episode, I do suggest that you do before you listen to the second part. But here is a little about my guest. Susie has had past careers in school teaching and in grief counselling, following a lifetime interest in UFOs. In 2000, she founded the UFO Focus New Zealand Research Network, UFOCUS NZ a New Zealand-wide organisation that investigates UFO sightings and provides support for those experiencing alien contact. Susie has been involved in UFO research for about 40 years and she lectures internationally at conferences about New Zealand UFO sightings and her own alien contact and interaction experiences. She also speaks publicly on spiritual and metaphysical topics. As Director of Focus NZ, she lobbied the New Zealand Chief of Defence Forces during 2009-2010 to for the release of the New Zealand Ministry of Defence UFO files, which occurred in 2010-2011. to 
Susie's focus for the last decade has been on encouraging members of the scientific community to participate in examining the wealth of science-related detail contained in accounts of human interaction with extraterrestrial species, as well as aspects of UFO sighting investigation data. She believes that one of the major issues facing humankind in the future will be open contact with other civilizations in the universe. In the meantime, there is much to be learnt from humans who have already made this tremendous leap in consciousness and who have witnessed the vast array of potential benefits available to mankind and our environment through such associations. Susie runs a support organisation for those experiencing contact with extraterrestrial species and intelligences. She is also the author of a book called The Dual Soul Connection, The Alien Agenda for Human Advancement. Her book uniquely combines absorbing details of her lifelong alien encounters along with a scientific examination by Dr. Rudy Schaud. Emeritus Astrophysicist, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in the USA. Here's the rest of our conversation. But you also mentioned the blue light. And um, I've also seen that blue light. Saw it coming in in a big, huge shaft into my bedroom once right onto my son's bassinet. And as a young mother, I sat bolt up upright in bed. I woke from a dead sleep and just immediately sat bolt upright and there was this blue shaft filling the room, covering his bassinet and the end of the bed and that part of the room. And one would think that a young mother, first child, would leap out of bed, grab their baby and maybe get their husband to look out the window and say, what the hell is causing that blue light? And what did I do? I fell back on my pillow and went to sleep. So uh, very interesting that this is how things happen. You don't remember at the time, but very often later on, it'll come back as a flashback or something will trigger that memory and you'll have this something open in your mind and it'll all be absolutely crystal clear. And it's not your imagination because you can be thinking about something entirely different and something will suddenly trigger it and there's that memory sitting there just under the surface. Great. And I had the same sort of experience with my firstborn as well. Yep. Oh, interesting. 
except there was no light. There were two men suddenly appeared in my room. And I sat bolt right up in my bed as well, instantly awake. Yes. But at that stage, I really wasn't as awake and aware as I am now. And I said, don't take my baby. She's too young. You can't take her yet. They said to me, we can tell you're upset. We'll leave her this time, but next time we come, we'll take her. Yes, now isn't that interesting, Marianne, because very often you'll hear people, and rightly so for some people who've had traumatic experiences, but they will talk about the, the trauma of their child being taken with them. Mm. But obviously you and I have had this kind of experience, and I too had the, the experience of going with my son, one of my sons, and realizing that my husband was away and the other son would be left on his own. So I actually refused to go. And they, there was some discussion took place telepathically. And then they said, okay, well, will you be happy if we leave one? And he, we will ensure he will not wake. So one of the three remained. And while I went with my other son. So that brings to mind my willingness to actually trust them to the extent that I went with them and left my, one of my sons behind under their care. You you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion goes on about how long these entities could be in our earth atmosphere. Well, they certainly seem to cope all right for periods of time. So I don't think that was a concern, but it did, it was a shock to me the next day to realize that as a young mother, I was putting trust in them and that I would be quite happy about that situation. It took me some time to work through that in my own mind. Oh, I can imagine as a young mum how that would have affected me. And yeah, I can see that would have taken some processing. And because we're very protective of our children, that's a mother's natural instinct. Mm. Absolutely. And we don't want them to feel fear or, yeah. So to do that was pretty pretty telling really of your relationship with these star people yes I think so you know I speak about my memories from childhood and how I had I felt so comfortable in their presence because if you grow up with something that's becomes a norm for you it's not until that norm is uh, shattered in some way that that you might re-examine it and it hasn't been shattered for me I've had um, catalyst moments like the the light coming over the car, but that caused me to realise what was happening. And as you said, at the time as a child, you don't you don't fully understand what is happening to you. You listen to what an adult says might be happening. So I listened to my mother's religious version of what might be happening, but I knew that that didn't quite fit either. So from a very young age, I was analytically looking at the facets of those experiences but not realizing really what they were until I was in my 20s and began to put two and two together right right well see for me I've always I've always talked about my experiences from the time I was little I've done it and I think it was partly because the men in black that visited the following day said to my mum you won't remember they kept repeating you won't remember so I think it was sort of like a hypnosis thing, and you won't talk about this. Yes, yeah. Mind control. Yes, yeah. 
You won't talk about this and you won't remember it. Well, I made it my point to talk about it. (laughs) Yes. And ever since, when the subjects come up in conversation, and really, people have thought that I'm crazy. I really don't care what people think. It's my truth and I'm going to speak up regardless. Yeah, that's good. But of course, there's, there's situations a lot of people are in where they can't do that. Of course. And certainly um, in my first marriage, I could not talk about these things. Um, that was a real difficulty. Right. My my second marriage, of course, is very different. But, you know, and also there are religious constraints. There are cultural constraints. Absolutely. For example, we had a sighting around Tauranga here several years ago and there was a, a young Tongan teacher from Auckland who actually had this experience of seeing a craft and an entity at night. It's a really, we really investigated this sighting quite deeply and we had a clinical psychologist look at the interviews and, and assess what they were saying, etc. And this was a life-changing thing for him, but he was terrified to talk about it because his family were were Christians. Mm. He didn't know how it would be seen by the church, and he didn't know how it would be viewed by his family, whether he would be ostracized or, or whatever. So he remained silent about it, and it took us several months to get him to actually talk to us and tell us what he witnessed, because there were two other people with him who'd already spoken with us, but he was declining But it wasn't until after he actually decided to sit down and tell his family that he he discovered that there were other family members who'd had similar experiences who also had not talked about it. So it became a very cathartic situation where the whole family sat down and divulged their experiences together and and then moved forward as a family with a, a totally different opinion or viewpoint of each other, but also of what they had experienced. So this was such an amazing sighting that went from not just the sighting description of what took place with the craft and the entity, but the worldview and flow-on effect that it had had on all four witnesses. That's really amazing. Oh, that's really awesome. That makes me happy to hear that for him because it's really difficult and there is so much fear out there. That's one of the major reasons why I talk openly about my stuff in my group. From the time I started my group, I've talked about my UFO experiences. I've talked about star people and I've tried to help people not to be so fearful. That's not to say that there aren't beings out there who don't have our best interests at heart. Of course there are. It would be naive not to think otherwise. That's right. But I also tell people that it's important to listen to what your body's telling you, what your feelings are telling you. Yes, that's right. And of course, everyone is different. And obviously, you're doing what you're meant to be doing with your podcasts and being, you know, totally unafraid to talk out about it. But then, you know, I also know that myself and other people have have been told by the ETs, okay, about timing about timing for us in particular, then that obviously doesn't apply to you. But for some people, that timing thing applies. And I think particularly as a public speaker out there at conferences, this timing thing is really relevant. And often before I divulge something, I will I will think about the timing and everything that goes with it. Mm. Because I have made mistakes in the past where I've divulged something 
that was too soon and it uh, it wasn't right and it had had bad consequences <laughs> so i guess we we sort of learn along the way but we're all on a different path to the same destination absolutely correct and we have different ways in which we implement our skills and utilize them correct and like you said, I made mistakes too because I was so keen to share what I knew that I approached people before they were ready when I was a lot younger and a lot less mature than I am now. But do learn as you go. Yep. And you learn how to judge how ready a person is to hear and how ready they aren't to hear. And yeah, yeah, it's all about timing. You're right. Yes, and sometimes you, you know, you, you just have to let people be mm, because mm. Um, if we look at the timing for ourselves that we're aware of, those people also are subject to timing in their soul journey or their soul task. Correct. So, you know, there's going to be a right time for them to suddenly be triggered just as I was when I was 20. And, and it'll, it'll happen and we can't make it happen. We can, we can only share things and if it goes right over someone's head or, or under their feet, that's fine. Um, but if they take it on board and it's the right time for them to do that, that's great too. Yep. I agree. And I look at it like planting a seed. Mm. It's got to be the right time for that seed to grow. That's right. And even if it doesn't grow then, it will when the time's right. Yes. That's how I look at it. You're the first person I know who's had the same sort of experiences I have. So reading your book was just like being there. It just brought it all back, you know. Mm -hmm. But I've actually had a connection with many different species of star people as well. I've had certainly with the greys, and as you said, they always come in groups of three, mm -hmm. always three. I don't know why they come in threes, but there was always groups of threes. Certainly, I've had experiences with other species as well, quite definite. And I remember one time when I lived in Narua Wahia, when my son was quite young, he would have been about five or six, and he's 28, nearly 29 now, there was a time when they visited my home and I woke up and there was around my bed a whole pile of different entities, different species all around my bed, about five or six of them, including one that was a reptilian and he scared me because I'd never seen that type consciously before. And he was trying to set me at ease, but all I could see were his sharp teeth and <laughs> thinking he was going to <laughs> eat me. <laughs> that was my conscious human thought. But he was actually really, really lovely, really wise, mm. very kind, very knowing. And anyway, the next day my son said to me, Hey, Mum, last night I was supposed to be asleep, but I was up reading. I was supposed to be asleep. <laughs> and Smokey poked his head around my door and said hi. <laughs> and to this day, he's never forgotten that. And and he often brings it up. He said it looked like a bookie. And I figured that was probably the least threatening way for Michael to see him because, you know, Star Wars was kind of big then, you know. Yes, yes, that's right. And and we know that they can create screen memories mm -hmm. so that children or adults who might be in a fearful state or that they don't want to be woken up just yet, they want to be educating people on the craft, mm. but not necessarily activating in, in life yet. 
will have different memories. And I recall my son saying to me that he'd been lifted up and went through the ceiling and he couldn't understand it because there was a whole lot of bees had taken him up through the ceiling. And on another occasion, it was spiders with really big eyes. So, you know, you get these ideas that come out of the mouths of babes. Right, right. So you've had these experiences and obviously it really altered your perspective on life and how you see things here and your journey here. So you started your investigation group. Can you tell us how that came about, please? Yes, well, at the age of 20, as I said, I started just collecting stories from that I heard of around about when I was living in Hawke's Bay. And there were quite a few interesting ones that came from farmers and farming families. But when I moved to Tauranga, I started to attend the local UFO group run by Harvey Cook, who was a, quite a well-known figure on television and radio back then in the 70s, 80s, 90s and earlier. He ran the UFO group for 44 years before he passed away in 2004 in his 80s. I went along to that group for quite some time before I had the courage to divulge to Harvey that I was having contact experiences because attending that group, it was all the nuts and bolts sighting stuff about how big something was and what colour it was and how many lights it had, etc. Nobody was talking about contact. So I didn't say anything to anyone. Uh, on one occasion, I sort of sidled up to one of the regular attendees and said, do you know anyone in the, in the group who's, um, who's had contact? And he turned around and sniggered and said, oh, you don't believe in that stuff, do you? Wow. So that really silenced me and I never raised that issue again for quite some time. When I did back up courage to, to talk to Harvey, I went to his home and spoke to him and his wife, and I must have spoken for about three hours. It just all came tumbling out, and I only covered a quarter of it, but it was very good. He was quite open to it, and from that point on, he began to incorporate more of that kind of thing in the club meetings, and I remember just before I spoke to Harvey, he, I had been talking to him privately, but not at the club. I hadn't divulged anything to the group. And he invited the son of one of his friends who'd um, had an, an experience with a UFO or a light in British Columbia and how he'd had a period of missing time. And when that young man came along to the meeting, sat up the front and described it, for me, it was as if there was no one else in the room. It was as if there was just me and this young man. I was hanging on his every word. My heart was pounding. My armpits and my hands were sweating. It was as if I was reliving some of those missing time experiences all over again, listening to him. That was the first time I'd really heard someone talk about this and, and that moment of knowing that I wasn't alone and that I, I needn't be quite so scared at that point. That would have been absolutely awesome to hear that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It would have made you feel, yeah, not alone for sure. So from that point, I, work, I actually worked with Harvey for about um, 15, 20 years and as he got older, I began to see that there wasn't a nationwide group in New Zealand. We had some MUFON influence here, but of course MUFON is American. There was nothing Kiwi to do with UFO sighting research. 
So I said to Harvey, would you be offended if I started up my own group? And he said, no, not at all. Go for it. And if I was 20 years younger, I'd do that now too. So I set up a website and began approaching people very cautiously to who might be able to join me and become an investigator around the country because the idea was to have break the country into regions and have um, people in those regions who could go out and talk to people who've had sightings, send me clippings from anything that new, appeared in the newspaper, etc. So a nationwide network. And in 1995, I, I saw a newspaper clipping given to me by my mother about an air traffic controller at Hamilton Airport who had seen a UFO. And at that point, Harvey and I had had a report from the local Tauranga harbour master who captained the tugboat. And he'd been out fishing with a friend and they'd seen this massive sphere go overhead with this trail behind it. And it had risen up over the Kaimais. And a minute and a half later, when we compared the two sighting reports, it, it flashed past 17 kilometres south of the control tower at Hamilton Airport and was seen by Graham Opie, who was controller, chief controller at the time. So I contacted Graham, went and interviewed him. We sort of became friends in terms of I asked him if he would like to be a an aviation consultant for us and an air traffic controller consultant. And he said, yes, okay, but I'll have to ask my wife and I'll have to ask the CAA, which he did. And he came back and said, yes, that'll be fine. And a couple of years went by and he became more and more interested in the topic, began investigating sightings over in Waikato and spent many long hours over cups of coffee talking to me about my contact experiences, etc. And he became fully immersed in the subject. And I think he was possibly the, f the first or only air traffic controller worldwide who, while actively serving as an air traffic controller, was also an investigator for a civilian UFO organisation. Wow, that would have been a first. So Graham and I um, worked together for 20 years and he passed away of with cancer in 2015, sadly. And uh, he's sorely missed because he was my right-hand man and, and a wonderful person who'd stepped out of the, the standard box and was brave enough to talk about his experience and what he had seen and to support a civilian group. Wow, that was really brave, especially back then to do something like that, especially when your career is involved and a high-profile career too, one where credibility is absolutely important. That's right. But after that, we didn't stop there. We decided that we would approach John Cordy, who is a retired air traffic controller. He was chief air traffic controller at Wellington International Airport for many years. And John is the last now the last surviving air traffic controller from the Kaikoura Lights sightings. So John now is in his mid-80s and as sharp as a tack and he is our aviation and air traffic control in terms of you know how things function. He's our consultant in that area and John still does wonderful public speaking about what he recalls and what it was like and the whole electric atmosphere in the control centre at Wellington Airport at the time that the Argosy was landing and he was talking to the pilots over radio and watching it on watching the UFOs on radar. So John 
joined the team as well. And then we now have an astronomer, we have an engineer, we have a scientist. We did have a policeman for a while till he moved overseas. So we've got a really good across the board kind of strata of people on the team. There's only eight of us, but we cover all of New Zealand. And then we also have Brian Dickerson, who actually lives in Australia, who is a Kiwi, and his parents were early UFO researchers in New Zealand. They were very well known. They were former Air Force, and they had the Xenolog magazine in New Zealand for many years. So although he lives in Australia, he's very much part of the team because, as you know, these days we do everything over technology anyway. Right. You don't have to be sitting in the same room or in the same country. And Brian really is our, our historical archivist. He's just amazing, along with Rob Fowler from Christchurch. Oh, it sounds like you have a really awesome team. They are. They're a wonderful group, and I've always been the only woman in it. <laughs> <laughs> but every year we get um, quite a number of people coming to us saying, look, I'd like to join your team. And we do need some more investigators around the country now that the population has grown. But I do like to get to know people before I decide to take um, anyone on board. We also have at Ufocus NZ a number of professionals who work in the background who want to remain pretty much anonymous. So we've got a doctor and we've got a pilot, we've got clinical psychologist, and a number of other people, including an astrophysicist in the States who contributed to my book, and other people worldwide who have specific talents, such as a photographic data analysis. And so these people are in the background because, you know, we're civilians, we don't claim to know everything. And if we feel out of our depth within the aspect of a contact experience or a sighting experience, we have these professionals to refer to. So that, I believe, gives us, should give us much more credibility in the public eye that we're not sitting here pontificating and making some wacky decisions about things. We actually refer to professionals in various areas. I think that's really awesome. And that's one of the things that really stood out for me about your investigation group is that you do have these professionals in the background that are part of your team. Yes. And I think that's really, really important and awesome. Can I go back, if you don't mind, Susie, because only 25% of my listeners are from New Zealand. The rest are worldwide. Could you please talk about what the Kaikoura incident and the Kaikoura lights was about and perhaps some other incidents? Incidents in New Zealand that stand out for you? Okay. Well, Kaikoura is still considered by Dr. Bruce Maccabee, who's a physicist in the States and has done a lot of investigation and analysis of UFO footage worldwide. He still, and he analyzed the Kaikoura lights footage at the time in the late 70s. And um, he still considers the Kaikoura lights sightings by the Argosy pilots, which I'll explain in a minute, as in the top 10 most credible sightings worldwide. So in New Zealand and in fact worldwide in the late 70s, from about 77 through to 80, we had one of those classic UFO flaps that was, was happening in many countries worldwide where there was an upswing of UFO sightings, a phenomenal upswing. And New Zealand was no different, even though we're right down here at the bottom of the planet. We, we had this 
huge inflow of sightings. So at the time, it started with the actually started with the Gisborne UFO flap, where centred around the Gisborne and the East Cape area, and in particular up a valley near Gisborne called the Waimata Valley, a very famous now valley. There were numerous sightings. There were over 200 reported to the police and media alone, let alone all those that went unreported. So we're talking about a massive UFO flap that was taking place. At that time, I was living up the coast teaching in a, in a small community called Te Araroa on East Cape. And that's where I had a lot of my UFO sightings and contact experiences and missing time. So there was a, all this sighting going on around the place and right in the middle of this Gisborne flap and at the end of 1978, the Kaikoura sightings occurred. So again, we had this mini flap in the Cook Strait, Wellington, Kaikoura, Christchurch general area. And this was on the flight paths of the Argosy aircraft, which were freight aircraft that moved up and down between the North and South Island, carrying freight at, mainly at night. The first sightings of these occurred earlier on in December, and then we, right at the end of December, we had the the sighting that was filmed by an Australian film crew who had heard about the first lot of pilots seeing these lights in the sky and many many people in that area sighting UFO lights as well. So we're talking about lights that circled the aircraft, that followed the aircraft, that went under the aircraft. And of course, at the time, there was a big cover-up taking place once the media broke the story. And I have got a, a veritable archive here in my office of newspaper clippings from all around Kaikoura, Wellington, etc., and these were um, publicised all over the place. So the government of the time decided that they had better have a, a closer look at this. They got the DSIR, which is the Des Department of Scientific and Industrial Research in New Zealand, to look into the sightings as well. And they had some astronomers who looked into it, who at first claimed that it was Venus, just to quell the the panic and make everyone feel happy that it, everything was all right. But of course, that was quickly just proven to be totally incorrect. I think that a number of absolutely farcical ex explanations came out for the Kaikoura lights, such as the lights of cities reflecting off the, the breasts of mutton birds flying <laughs> south, and also um, the lights of squid boats reflected <laughs> off clouds. I remember those. I remember those excuses that were put out, yep. And I remember cracking up when I heard them. Yes, and as John Cordy, my good friend, the air traffic controller at the time, said, uh, mutton birds don't show up on your screen and nor do they circle <laughs> an aircraft at speed. And these pilots were highly trained and used to flying those routes at night, used to seeing the international fishing fleets creeping into New Zealand waters, taking our fish and shining their squid boat lights. They were very used to seeing this. They saw it most nights. So as if on this particular night, they would mistake the lights of squid boats to be some other phenomenal light. No, they didn't. They, they saw what they saw. So that was the Kaikoura lights. 
and the Gisborne Flat. We've also had like the Natia Landing site back in the, in the 60s. We've had the Moreland sighting, Eileen Moreland sighting, where she saw a craft come down over her dairy farm in the early in the morning. Late, late 50s and 60s was a time when there were a lot of things going on, very well documented at the time, lots of drawings and illustrations by the witnesses. That period of time sort of went into a bit of a lull and then out of the late 70s we started getting the New Zealand contact abduction stories which my early contacts were part of although I choose not to call it an abduction. And a lot of those early abductees were crucified by the media and the public. In other respects, they had a lot of support from people at their meetings they held in Auckland. But I take my hat off to those early people in New Zealand who spoke about their contact experiences. I did not. I chose not to because I was still assimilating it into my life and my reality. And I didn't feel it was the right time for me. So I stayed in the background at that stage. But I did speak with those people personally. Moving on through time to more recent times, around uh, 2011 through to 2015, we have had a group of phenomenal sightings in New Zealand, which probably haven't had the publicity that they deserved, including a sighting by a neuroscientist who saw an actual craft and on another occasion an entity. And we've had hunters who had the, the sighting of a of an actual craft and entity up the back of Tauranga here. We had a highly trained medic who had an experience on Moriwai Beach, north of Auckland. So there have been quite a number of quite stunning sightings and some of those people have said, I don't want it publicised. Others are happy for me to talk about those sightings publicly. But uh, Cheryl Costa, who's an investigator, statistical uh, research in the States has looked at a lot of MUFON records from the States and has isolated the fact that there's a seven-year cycle, seems to be a seven-year cycle to sightings, and that absolutely corroborates what we and researchers I know in Australia and the UK, etc., have found also, that it's a very cyclic, and roughly every seven to nine years, you go into a up into a peak and there's a lot of sightings then they drop off mm. and then you have a lull and it starts to build up again it goes in a waveform. That's very interesting. That's our uh, our group and we're still going we've had a few little tragedies with uh, you know Graham passing away and a few other things I wrote my book and have been speaking overseas so we haven't been as much of a public face as we've we were some years ago but I've just taken a couple of new members on, new investigators, and at the moment we're making plans to do some very interesting research next year, questionnaires, and get ourselves out there a bit more because I think people are quite hungry for that nuts and bolts stuff because very often that leads to people divulging that they actually had a contact as well. Absolutely. For my listeners, would you like to tell them the names? off your websites so they can go and check them out for themselves? It's UFO Focus New Zealand, otherwise known as UFOCUS NZ. So it's www.ufocusnz, that's U-F-O-C-U-S-N-Z, all one word, 
www.org.nz. I also have a website which is still under construction called communicatorlink.com where I support people who've had contact experiences and I work with one of my Ufocus NZ staff members, Brian Dickerson, who's in Australia. He's a fully trained hypnotherapist and trained by the New South Wales Forensic Police Force, Police Unit, and Cheryl Gottschall, who's in Brisbane, a good friend and colleague of mine in Australia, and she's fully trained also as a clinical hypnotherapist. And I have been a school teacher and grief counsellor, so we all have a bit of a background that's that relates to directly to contact, and Cheryl is an experiencer as well as myself. And we also have Dr. Rudy Schild, who contributed to my book as a consultant. If anyone's got any anything to do with physics or specific scientific memories from their their experiences and also real consciousness telepathy type things, uh, Rudy is very interested in in looking at that and studying it. So, Susie, what would you want people to know who may be having experiences? What would you tell them? I would tell them to talk to another experiencer. And the reason I say that is not because I think that all researchers or therapists out there are no good, because I know you know quite a few very good researchers and therapists worldwide, but at the same time, there are some of them out there who are not so good, and I think you have to be very careful who you speak about your experiences to, because... I have found the hard way many years ago that some researchers out there who are not experiencers themselves are on the speaking circuit. They they want to grab hold of your material for their next article or speech subject or PowerPoint or whatever, their next interview. And there are some out there who have very little integrity. They break confidentiality. And I have been subjected to this. They break confidentiality agreements. They use your stuff all over the place. And the thing is, there is a readiness that must be attained by an experiencer before they go public or before they even speak to someone else, even another experiencer. You've got to be ready. And very often, these people on the speaking circuit who are researchers, they are wanting to keep their place on in the pecking order and on the rung of the ladder. And they don't mind at all taking your stuff and they don't mind at all pushing you to talk publicly about your experiences on a nice little video that they can then use in a speech. And very often if this happens too soon and the person is not ready for it, uh, it can be catastrophic in your life, Mm. not just for you, but for your family and friends and your social acquaintances, etc. And I say to people, it can be quite dangerous out there. At this point in time, I have been, as I've mentioned before, I've been subjected to threats and all kinds of things that I've experienced in my travels. And people try to put a spoke in your wheel and they try to stop you speaking, and that can be quite frightening. And I wouldn't like to see people intimidated in any way by going public about their experiences too soon. So, you know, choose very carefully who you speak to. If you have a loved one, a husband, wife, good friend or sister or brother or whatever that you feel you can speak to about it, that make that your starting point to, to talk to them. 
And if you think that they're going to be open-minded and empathetic, then that's a good thing. You don't have to go out there shouting it from the rooftops or, or necessarily seeking out someone in the field to talk to. But it is good to talk to other experiencers. And certainly through Communicator Link, we can put people in touch with nearby experiencers or experiencers overseas who are a little further down the track in understanding the experiences and can be very helpful. It's also not terribly helpful to go out there reading every single book you can find because, once again, some of those are written by experiencers and some by purely researchers. Sometimes an idea or a, or a perception is repeated so many times in speeches and interviews that people begin to accept a mistaken way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that might just be someone's pet theory, mm-hmm. but they've been presenting any information they can find that might support that theory but which is quite a tenuous link and if it was examined a bit further you'd find that that wasn't such a good theory after all so it is a little bit of a minefield and you have to be really careful who you approach that's really good advice I remember for years I would never read anything anybody had written but the only book I ever read was when I was about 17, and that was Chariot of the Gods by Eric von Daniken. Right, yes. That's the only book. I refused to because I didn't want my knowing tainted by others' opinions. Yes, that's right. And I think also we were fortunate in some ways, Marianne, mm. living in New Zealand because it took quite a long time for stuff to reach here. Right, it did. I mean, particularly in the States and some other countries, there was a, a lot happening in terms with Dr. John Mack and Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and others. There was a lot happening in the contact field and it was being brought out, you know, decades earlier than it was here. Mm. And we didn't even have those books that were written by those people coming into the country until some years later. And even then, they were all quite negative. Mm. And some of them coming in at that time, I recall I w- at the time that I was really examining all of this in my 30s and going through what had happened and trying to understand it. And when some of these books started coming into New Zealand and a lot of fairly new age people and practitioners sort of grabbed hold of them and started saying, well, you must be having this experience or Mm. that experience and you should be very scared because it's the greys and they're all bad and, you know, you should be very very afraid of this. And so the fear that I wore like a little jacket for a while was actually not my own fear at all. It was fear being imposed on me by other people. And when I finally realised that, that these guys who were coming to see me at night in my 30s were the same ones I loved when I was a kid, Mm. it all disappeared Mm. and I wasn't willing to accept other people's judgments on it. I just wanted to investigate it for myself. I totally can understand that. And I know that there are beings that I absolutely love, absolutely love. And in fact, one of them gave me the wisest advice, and it's something I've tried to live with since he gave it to me, and it's this. He said, when you do anything, Marianne, you must do it from your heart. Yeah. When you think, think from your heart. When you talk, talk from your heart. When you act, act from your heart. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing that he told me is that intent is everything. Yes. 
Yes, that we seem to have a shared message there, right? Because time and time again, it was the intent. And mm-hmm. I think one of the chapters in my book, I describe how um, I was taken on board a craft, and the entire time I was there was a lesson on the power of intent, mm. negative and positive, mm-hmm. and that really stuck in my mind the way that they illustrated it to me and the way they described it it really makes you think the power of energy and the power of your intent behind that energy and it covers words and thoughts and deeds and all kinds of things what we emanate each day and none of us are perfect but as long as our intent is that we are going to have the best intent we can muster yeah then we're on the right road Yeah, absolutely. And I always tell the members of my Facebook group, Walking the Shadowlands, look, your intent, your intent is everything. If you intend to have positive experiences, you'll have positive experiences. If you're putting shielding or protection around yourself and you think it's not going to be enough, it never will be. Mm, mm, That's right. Because that's the intent you're putting out. Yes, yes, that's right. So moving forward, what what is your impression of this soft disclosure mm-hmm. that's been going on by the government for the past two years now? Mm. Well, I'm standing back somewhat cautious mm. of all this. And although I've got a Facebook page, I haven't put any of that on it. And I don't know why, but I just I just can't. I don't want that on my page at the moment. I know that back in the 80s and 90s, I was in large groups of of humans on board craft and in underground undersea bases where we were being lectured about this kind of thing, what would come in the future. And I think we're seeing some cults developing. And by that, I mean, even down to the fact that there are researchers who have a massive following who will say almost anything and change their opinion If the trend changes overnight, they will chameleon-like change the next day to follow the trend. Right. And I think that people need to be very, very aware of the cult-like nature of this subject and that this does exist. And if there's a very, very large group, being human, we run the risk of turning it into a kind of cult with leaders and followers because that seems to be an unsavory part of human nature. Mm. That's what we do to these kinds of subjects. I know that the ETs always said that disclosure needed to happen very slowly and very carefully and that they have actually been a part of of that, what I call in my book disclosure from the other side, how they are disclosing themselves in a long, slow process. But I think there seems to be an emphasis in the soft disclosures taking place on technology. Mm. And I'm very suspicious of that, and I'll tell you why. I spoke at a conference in the States last year, and I spoke about alien technology. I spoke about the technology I have observed and used on board craft decades ago, which I wrote about and spoke about, and I have still have my speech DVDs of me talking about it decades ago. And now in our own science and technology within, say, the last 10 years, we have been producing some of those technologies ourselves, albeit in a far less sophisticated version than what the ETs have. 
And I'm rather suspicious of that. And I've discussed it at length with Dr. Rudy Schill, who contributed to my book, The Astrophysicist and Cosmologist in the States, because are we following the same line of physics as the ETs? How could that necessarily be that we would start producing virtually exactly the same technology as them in a less sophisticated form? Mm, Right. When I say less sophisticated, um, I mainly mean that their technology is infused with consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's consciousness assisted. And that's the thing that we haven't mastered yet. So we're trying to use some of the old X-ray, MRI kind of technology to achieve what they are able to to achieve with the use of consciousness Mm. and technology combined. We can't do that yet. So after my speech, I was threatened um, that evening. uh, I was alone in a corridor in the hotel that I was in. I was approached by two men who told me I should come home and not talk about the technology anymore. And they demanded to know what I knew. I was also sprayed by something in a lift in the hotel by a rather unusual woman. And I thought it was perfume, but I suspect it wasn't because I've heard of another researcher who was sprayed in a similar circumstances in a lift at the conference and he died. He was rushed to hospital two nights later and died. And I came home to New Zealand and nearly died the day after I got home. And I had bacterial skin, lung and blood infections. So this whole thing is can be a little bit dangerous out there. In terms of this disclosure thing, I think that there may be certain groups who are trying to use it to their advantage with this technology that they claim they have developed and have. What is the purpose of this sudden soft disclosure? What is the purpose of suddenly highlighting pilot and military sightings Mm. and footage that they've had sequestered away somewhere secret for years Mm. and suddenly in support of this whole technology push they bring it out of the cupboard and say look it's real this is credible information right and this is credible witnesses here it's real well why didn't they do that some time ago why is it being done in conjunction with this whole technology push Mm -hmm. and why does someone not want me to talk about what I know about alien technology if this technology is being publicized now why am I being silenced Mm, good question you know so um and other people like me I'm not the only one so I'm somewhat suspicious I will reserve comment and judgment on that I'm afraid Marianne and until I've seen how it pans out Yeah, yeah. Well, I suspect it's something to do with this new space force that's just been created. Yes. That's my suspicion. But my people did tell me years ago, well, decades ago, in the 80s actually, that the government, the world governments, had to release the information to the people. Mm. Otherwise, it would be taken out of their hands. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, I'm always suspicious about what governments do because we all know they're only puppets. Mm, that's right. And in terms of disclosure, well, disclosure has been happening every single time for decades now. Every single time someone reports a UFO sighting, right? that's a form of disclosure. Yeah, yeah. And we also have this 
tendency out there in the field now where UFO sighting investigators and research people are sort of being marginalised and a lot of the new age kind of people coming flooding into the field are saying it's all about contact, it's all about consciousness and we don't want to hear about that stuff. But in fact, it's very much a part of the whole picture and I don't know how many people we talk to who say they've had a sighting and they describe it and then you say is there anything else you'd like to say and they say no and then you might get back to them with a couple of questions in an email and then a couple of more questions and and eventually you'll say is there anything else you'd like to add and they say well actually um, I think I had some kind of contact and if you don't keep asking Mm. you won't ever dig that out that they won't they won't admit it they want to tell you about the sighting but taking telling you about the contact even though we are sighting investigators and you know cover the full gambit we still get people writing to us saying look I don't know whether I should tell you this because you might think I'm crazy mm-hmm. and yet we're we're investigating it why would we think they're crazy mm-hmm. we're, we're keen to examine what what they've got to say and you know on a personal level I can absolutely understand that when, because when I sent in my sighting to you that I had in January I was really reluctant to tell you how that came about. <laughs> Not about the sighting itself, but how it came about. Yeah. And here, here am I. And, you know, I'm open about my experiences. But, you know, and even I was, I was reluctant <laughs> So I totally understand where they're coming from. It's sharing with the authorities thing, really. It's it's fear of being judged. So I totally understand how the average person on the street might feel about it. And on the subject of reporting sightings, it's actually very easy for people to go onto your site and create a report. And you have a form there that they can download and fill in and send off to you. Yes, that's right. It's a Word document so they can fill it out and email it to us and we'll get back to them as soon as possible. But also, you know, we get at you folks NZ, we, we get, I talk overseas mainly about my contact experiences, but also about sightings, probably less about sightings, but I'm going to be speaking about some special sightings in Australia shortly next month. And I get we get people from all around the world who've looked at our website emailing us about their experiences. And it's interesting that earlier on you talked about a blue beam of light coming down because just overnight I've received an email from a man in the States who talks about a beam of light coming down and how he was at a social function and saw someone who he knew he'd seen before on a craft. So, you know, you have these little confirmations and corroborations that come out of the blue overnight and there it is for you to read in the morning and it's often a little bit, another little piece to the puzzle. Right. That's really cool how that works, isn't it? Very cool. Have you found, Susie, that actually many people like you and I who are experiencers have heightened psychic abilities? Definitely. Yeah, I think because of the training we've received over our lives. Yes, definitely. And we've definitely received training on the craft Mm. and how to use our mind and our senses and our auric field. So the vast majority of people who've had 
you know, onboard craft experiences, memory of, have that capacity. And I see that all the time mm. in my travels overseas. Um, people come up and say things or pick things up or, or whatever. And uh, I've had one quite phenomenal experience of having direct telepathy with a lady in the States when I spoke at the Congress. Uh, she came into the uh, experience her support meeting early in the morning at the conference and the room was already full with people. There weren't many seats. It was quite a small room. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, there's a seat down the end, but she can't see it. And she was just about to back out the door and give up and, you know, probably go and have a cup of coffee and not try to get into the room because it was full. And she looked direct, she looked around and she, her eyes settled on me. She gave me a very hard look and then she looked to her left and went down to the empty seat, which wasn't visible until she moved forward a bit and actually looked. After the meeting, I took off down the corridor because I was speaking that morning and she chased me down the corridor and stopped me and said, I heard you. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I heard you say that there was a seat down in the corner. We felt as immediately uh, we were both very emotional, overcome and tearful. We felt as if we knew each other and had seen each other. And for the rest of the time at the, the five-day conference, we on several occasions had that direct telepathic communication where we were able to verify that the other person had picked up what we had thought and that was quite spontaneous. So we communicated for quite a few years about our experiences and, and how they were progressing. Oh, wow. How awesome was that? That would have made you feel like you were at home, really. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 And unless you've had that kind of experience, you don't understand what that connection is like mm, mm. to feel somebody who's that connected with you. Yeah. Yes, and, and just um, verification and corroboration. Corroboration is a really important word to me. That word was given to me by an ET on board a craft. I asked him on one occasion, have you got a bit of advice for my life? And he said corroboration and turned and walked away. I was disappointed at the time because it, that didn't really mean much to me at that time. <laughs> And then several years later, I began to realize that the, that what I was gathering about technology coming out into our technical arena that I'd seen decades beforehand was a form of corroboration and a form of evidence. And I realized how really important that word is. And now I'm seeking that corroboration as much as possible in all aspects of contact and UFO sightings. It's, it really draws things together for people if you can show them something that's almost identical to what they have experienced or seen. That's awesome, Susie. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed listening to your experiences and your knowledge, and I know that my listeners are going to get a lot of a lot out of this as well. Thank you, Marianne. And it's also really good to speak to an interviewer who's had their own experiences and can act, and has actually read the book. I couldn't put the book down, honestly. I'm often interviewed and they haven't read the book and they really don't know what to ask me. <laughs> I started writing notes and I just gave up because I could just remember everything you said because I thought, oh, yeah, I've done that, done this, been there. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Susie. I've really enjoyed our chat. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Marion. And likewise. 
the past two episodes, my guest Susie Hansen and I have discussed some of our experiences with star people, sky people, extraterrestrials, ETs, extraterrestrial biological entities, whatever label you wish to use. Susie's bravely shared with us her journey from the time she was a child through to motherhood and adulthood with these beings. She's talked with us about how she began her great group, UFO Focus NZ. For those who want her website address again, it's www.ufofocusnz.org.nz. That's ufocusnz.org.nz. She also talked about her support group for star people at www.communicatorlink.com. Then she talked about her team members and some cases that they had investigated. Susie talked briefly about the difficulties and oppositions she has faced being public with her encounters, including harassment and intimidation and a potentially life-threatening situation where she was sprayed with some unknown compound causing her to become deathly ill the day after her return to New Zealand from speaking at an overseas conference. Yet... Despite the coercion and threats to her life and implied threats against her children, Susie has remained steadfast in her work in bringing this subject out of the shadowlands and into the sunlight where it really belongs. So kudos to you, Susie. It takes a very brave person to be continually out in the public face like that. I know that I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with her and I feel pretty sure that Susie will be back on our show at a later date. So thank you very much, Susie, for your courage in speaking out and for helping all those people in a practical way with your websites and your work. I, for one, appreciate all the work that you and your team do. If this episode has brought up any memories and issues for you, then you can always contact Susie's support team at www.communicatorlink.com or if you want to talk to me about your experiences or memories, you can email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com or through the podcast's website contact page www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. Just be kind to yourself and know it's okay to remember and you most definitely are not alone in your experiences. Musical score today is called Private Reflection by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. For more information, check out this episode's page on the podcast website at www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. If you have any suggestions for topics you might like me to cover in upcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to contact me. Or if you have any questions or any comments that you'd like to make or experiences that you might like to share with myself and my audience, then just email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com. If you're a member of Anchor at anchor.fm, then you can leave me a voice message via their platform, which I could include in an upcoming episode. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and don't be shy to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts or on your chosen podcasting platform. Who knows, you may hear your review read out at the end of one of these podcasts and of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms and available from iHeartRadio as well. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also, the more the merrier. Please consider supporting this show on Patreon.com. You can check out the link on our website, check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name and our Twitter feed at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, we'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening. 